If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. In fact, one of the interesting stories here at the Tower is in the 18th century, his armour was on display and women would come and stick pins into the red velvet lining of his codpiece in the hope of aiding conception. That was Susanna Lipscomb on the legacy of Henry VIII. Welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. And we also have a Kindle edition from the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this, plus great subscription offers on our website, historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at History Extra, or on Facebook forward slash History Extra. Earlier this year, we ran a series of lectures at the Tower of London. For the second of those events, historians Dan Jones and Susanna Lipscomb argued the importance of the Tudor and Plantagenet dynasties. Last week, we heard from Dan Jones on the Plantagenets, This time it's the turn of Dr Susanna Lipscomb to make the case for the Tudors. And just before we begin, we have a brief advertisement break. In his new book, Terrorist's Creed, critically acclaimed historian Roger Griffin presents an explosive new theory about the fanatical worldview of those who carry out acts of extreme destruction. Drawing on sociology, psychology, novels and films, Griffin's work is crucial to understanding the issue of religion as a driving force behind terrorism. Terrorists' Creed, Fanatical Violence and the Human Need for Meaning. Available in hardback now from all good bookshops. Visit www.palgrave.com forward slash history for more information. Explore your family history on thegenealogist.co.uk The widest range of resources with the most powerful search tools. Start today with our 14-day free trial by visiting thegenealogist.co.uk forward slash podcast. And now let's head back to the tower to hear from Susanna Lipscomb. We have all the best stories. Whether we're going from our tabloid king, Henry, the much-married Henry VIII, through to the virgin queen, Elizabeth I, the 16th century is replete with wonderful stories. And when I was doing research for my most recent book, I was really struck by the poignancy of individual stories, whether it's the Protestant martyrs who were burnt in a ditch outside Oxford, 
or the twice-widowed 26-year-old Mary, Queen of Scots, who was brought to England, imprisoned here, or fled to England, was imprisoned here for 18 years and released only to be executed. Or, of course, the story of Sir Walter Raleigh, imprisoned here at the Tower of London for 13 years, during which time he wrote his History of the World, One Million Words, uh, he was released to sail to Guyana in search of the fabled city of gold, El Dorado, returned empty-handed, having annoyed uh, the monarch, and then was beheaded. His wife, Bess, kept his head in a velvet bag until her death. Those are the stories that come out of Tudor England. But the Tudors are more than a collection of stories you vaguely remember from your youth. I think the reason I study them and the reason you are fascinated by them is because they matter. Now, the Tudors are only three generations, from 1485 through to 1603. That's five or six monarchs, depending on whether you count Lady Jane Grey and her nine or more properly 13 days rule as one of your canon. 118 years. Not long. But the Tudors had, I would say, compared to the Plantagenets, by far the greatest impact on English history. They're hands down the most important and significant dynasty on a number of levels. Both the impact they had on the lives of those who lived in Tudor England and, I would suggest, on how they have shaped Britain today. Now, I'm using the word England when I talk about the Tudors advisedly in Britain today, but the two obviously are very important. Because if we think about what makes Britain Britain, I hope you'll agree with my suggested list, which is five very important things. Church of England, creating it into a Protestant nation, constitutional monarchy, empire, navy and Shakespeare and the legacy thereof, all of which I'm going to argue are products of the Tudor age. Because I think the Tudors are fundamental to our sense of national identity. Therein lie the roots of our Britishness, our idea of our national identity. When work commenced on the Channel Tunnel at Sangat in 1989, they put two huge plasterboard figures either side of the tunnel, one of François Premier, François I of France, and the other, Henry VIII, because those two figures were thought to symbolise England and France. Edward Freeman said in 1870, he, thinking that Henry VIII was a tyrant and a vandal, that for all his crimes, he was at least an Englishman. <laughs> and I think a large part of that sense of the creation of English and later British national identity in the Tudor periods comes, of course, from the creation of the Church of England. In other words, I might be saying <laughs> that our sense of national identity springs from Henry VIII's loins. Well, we all know that he put aside his wife of nearly 24 years for three reasons. One, because he wanted a male heir. Two, because he fell in love. And three, because he had managed to convince himself that it was shameful for monarchs to be under the authority of popes. And we see, in fact, a growing commitment by Henry to the idea of the supremacy, paralleling the divorce crisis. J.J. Scarisbeck, who wrote a huge biography of Henry years ago, said, if there had been no divorce, Henry might yet have taken issue with the church. Because as early as the 1515 at Baynard's Castle, uh, Henry was suggesting that English kings had a position directly under God, which you can sort of see depicted here on the Great Bible. There's Henry handing out the word of God to his people under a rather squashed God. Henry said in 1515, By the ordinance and sufferance of God, we are king of England. And the kings of England in times past 
have never had any superior but God alone. So the break with Rome happens. The break with Rome is actually a series of acts from August 1530, suggesting that no Englishman may be summoned out of a home, his homeland to a foreign jurisdiction, i.e. no king is going to go to a divorce court in Rome, through to 1534, the Act of Supremacy, in which it was declared that Henry was, and always had been, the supreme head of the Church of England. They just hadn't noticed recently. <laughs> and crucial to this was the idea that England was an empire. In 1533, in the Act of Appeals, it says this in the preface, Whereas by diverse sundry, old, authentic histories and chronicles, it is manifestly declared and expressed that this realm of England is an empire. And what that meant was that no foreign ruler should have authority over England. The royal supremacy enhanced the standing of the English monarchy considerably and created the sense of national identity. And Elizabeth, in her settlement, ensured that England remained an independent, Protestant country. And this definition of England as Protestant is a fundamental point of English identity and history. Think of the glorious revolution of 1689-88-89. The Catholic king, James II, deposed by supporters of the Protestants, William and Mary. The Act of Settlement of 1701 that ensured that no Catholic could become sovereign. In fact, a British monarch can still not become Catholic. Even that recent change to the law that suggests that when Harry finally comes to do this, he can marry a Catholic if he wants, still doesn't allow a British monarch to be a Catholic because... As Supreme Governor of the Church of England, they need to be in communion with the Church. In fact, you've seen that survey in the news recently. 79% of adults in England say that the Queen should still be Supreme Governor. And I would suggest that the qualities, many of the qualities we associate with Britishness, diligence, industriousness, duty, capitalism, individualism, what Max Weber famously called the Protestant (coughs) ethic, are defining tenets of Protestantism. Uh, and, in fact, now of Western liberal democracy. We exported all those qualities to the rest of the world. Interestingly, the title of Defender of the Faith, of course, Philo Defensor, got attached to this title of Supreme Head. Though, ironically, it was earned by Henry VIII for his support for the Pope against Luther in 1521. But it's still attached to the monarch today, and I would <coughs> suggest that you might well have it jangling around in your pocket. You see the FD, Fido Defensa. Now this break with Rome was crucial because it meant a break with Catholic Church and a break with Catholic Europe. England was distinct, cut off politically and spiritually, beginning of a splendid isolation. And it also meant something else. In, on the continent where Reformation did occur, it often was very bloodthirsty. As, for example, this is a picture of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France in 1572. Here it was relatively bloodless. Well, practically. As Peter Marshalls put it, the Tudor state retained a monopoly on violence. So we have Catholic priests here at the Tower. This is actually uh, a Protestant because the, uh, the Protestants won, you see. Fox's Book of Martyrs shows them rather than anyone else. But Catholic priests here at the Tower were shackled, they were racked, they were put in the manacles. And there was also, as actually Dan's mentioned, a certain amount of violence 
towards things, shrines, chantries, uh, masses for the dead, all these things weren't easily abandoned, but in some cases they were powerfully dismantled. The brilliance of the Elizabethan settlement was that after years, after generations of living with these changes, she created a middle way that she and all the people in England could accept. She created, fundamentally, the basis of the Church of England today. And Henry VIII, of course, was also the first king to authorise a religious text in the vernacular, the translation and publication of the Bible in English. This was crucial because it meant that ordinary people could engage with the scripture and with God directly. It fundamentally has changed our ideas about the interiority of religion and spirituality. Faith needn't be vicarious. We don't need a clerical caste to go for. We don't need anyone to intervene. We are empowered, if we want, to have a relationship with God directly. And of course this also means things like prayer books. in English. This is Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, essentially the text you use if you get married in the Church of England today. And a crucial thing, of course. The Reformation meant the dissolution of the monasteries. This changed the religious, hierarchical, architectural and topographical face of Britain. It meant huge uh, change, incalculable cultural vandalism. The loss of a finely crafted plate that was melted down, irreplaceable medieval libraries that were ransacked, uh, invaluable jewellery that was dissipated, and, as you can see, the scars of uh, the ruined Gothic buildings still lie on our landscape today. And it had a profound impact on people at the time. Imagine, if you will, that your local school, hospital and welfare system were all closed down over a short period of time, and you have some sense of the impact of the dissolution of the monasteries. It was also the greatest redistribution of wealth since the Norman Conquest. It created a land market. Previously, these lands had been in the hands of the Crown and the Church. Now the Crown sold them off to the aristocracy and the gentry, creating a new upper class, redefining where the aristocracy lived. In fact, I would suggest you creating the home counties, these these lands where the aristocracy needs to live near to London. And it funded the building of places like Hampton Court, Nonsuch Palace, and Henry's coastal fortifications that were so vital to the defence of England in, say, 1596. (coughs) Walter Raleigh took 500 men to Pendennis to stop a Spanish invasion, and they were later used as coastal bastions during World War I and World War II. In fact, the fact that Britain is a Protestant country is only as a result of Henry's break with Rome and Elizabeth's determination to press through a settlement that everyone could accept. And this Protestant heritage has been something that we have passed on into Australasia, into Canada, into the USA. We also see, though, the creation of the modern state in this period. With the accession of Henry VII and his swift marriage to Elizabeth of York, we see an end to the War of the Roses. This is 50 near-continuous years of warfare up before this point. Now we've got an age of security, to an extent, and peace. And in an age of peace, you can do things other than worry about war. One of the things that the Tudors do is invest in the machinery of government. They change the relationship between the crown and people. 
they usher in, I would suggest, the modern age. This is the creation of modern bureaucracy and administration. One example are the parish registers. In 1538, it becomes compulsory for every parish to keep a record of births, deaths and marriages. This is the beginning of the sort of data collection that's fundamental to the ordering of civil society. We also see the beginnings of the civil service, the creation of the office of principal secretary with Cromwell, and under Elizabeth, the principal secretaries effectively become the chief executive offices of the state, of the crown, in domestic and foreign affairs. They can only discharge their duties because they marshal a fleet of clerks who will do their work. These are the future departments of the secretaries of state, and they set up a permanent office organisation. Also, it's the beginning of the Secret secret Service. Francis Walsingham on the left here uh, is famous for creating his, his agents that ran over Europe. And John Dee, who you can see here, is an extraordinary character, astronomer, astrologer, mathematician, general all-round Renaissance man, signs off his letters as secret agent to the Queen with two zeros and a backwards long division sign, which I think effectively makes him the original 007. (laughs) And of course, this is a period of innovation in the democratic forms of government. Granted, this is a 19th century building, but by the early 16th century, Parliament was an accepted part of the Constitution. Or, I should say, Parliaments were an accepted part of the Constitution. Each meeting was called and ended by the Crown for a specific purpose, generally the granting of money. What we see in this period is a change in the use of Parliament. And this is a consequence of the long sessions of the Reformation Parliament, which run from 1529 to 1536. We see the emergence of a true legislative assembly assembly, as opposed to an occasional court. Previous parliaments had been called by the king for advice on great matters. But the changes in the 1530s mean that parliament is beginning to become a permanent place of political importance, incorporated absolutely (coughs) and irrevocably into the English system of government. The principle of legislation and the operation of statute are recognised Modern Parliament with all those essential three parts that are necessary to its authority. So, for example, when the previous separate distinct areas of Wales, Chester and Calais are incorporated into Henry's unitary kingdom, they are asked to send elected members to Parliament. Sir Thomas Smith in 1565... fairly soon at the beginning of Elizabeth I's reign, will say the, most, the Parliament is the most high and absolute power in the realm, that it bindeth all manner of persons. In other words, we're seeing the evolution from a king's court into the representative institution whose decisions bound everyone. It was transformed by the Reformation Parliament's long and frequent sessions, by its revolutionary consequences, its far-reaching measures and the Crown's devotion to its use, even if Henry VIII sometimes did use it for his own ends, transforming Parliament into its modern form as a supreme and sovereign legislator. Two years after the Tudors, Guy Fawkes thinks that Parliament might be a ripe place to blow up. Not St James's Palace, Parliament. Of course, the Tudor period also fundamentally shapes our sense of Britain. At the beginning of the Tudor period, the British Isles was pretty much 
essentially as it has been left by the Anglo-Saxon, with bits of Wales that have been held down over the preceding centuries by insane amounts of violence. I'd suggest the Plantagenets had added little to the (coughs) Anglo-Saxon inheritance. But the Tudors, well, you see, they formally annexed Wales in 1536 and 1543. They established the 12 counties. The border with Wales has been the same ever since. This is constitutional reform of the highest order. Wales has ever since been part of the union with England. And, of course, we've got England's first colony. That's Ireland. The Tudors were the first to conquer the whole of Ireland. Henry II may have added the title ruler of Ireland to his titles, but Henry VIII was the first English king to subdue and rule the Irish, sending English Protestants to plant and colonise to wrest control from the Gaelic population. So he announces himself king of Ireland in the 1530s. And the territories were extended under Mary, who moves to the west of Dublin, sending uh, English to uh, colonising farms known as plantations, and then particularly under Elizabeth. Under Elizabeth, there are five major riots, which she sends her favourites, people like Walter Raleigh, to go and subdue. And they also managed to take the north of Ireland, bringing all of Ireland under English control. In other words, in the Tudor period, we see the religious settlement and colonisation of Ireland. Gaelic Ireland is never the same. We see the imposition of English law, English language, English culture, the disarmament of Irish lords, their loss of lands, their loss of their hereditary authority. And the consequences, obviously, are huge. Think of the tensions between Catholics and Protestants. The question of who should rule over Ireland... These are things that have persisted up until all our lifetimes. Think of the IRA bomb attacks so very recently. This is a conflict initiated by the Tudors. This is an example of Tudor monarchs having impact in the modern world all the way up to today. And the Tudors also firmly establish England's place in Europe. The field of the cloth of gold which was staged by Wolsey, is, I think, like the Beijing Olympics, which signalled the Chinese to the world the Chinese had arrived, signalling to Europe that England has arrived. This is England's coming out party. This is saying England is a distinct and powerful nation in its own right, a point hammered home, of course, by the Armada. But at the same time as doing this, this is crucially an age of turning away from Europe. The best thing that happened in the Tudor period is that the Tudors lost Calais, January 1558. Now, as we've heard, the Plantagenets were wildly obsessed with holding on to France. In fact, I think it'd be fair to say that they were essentially French. Of course, they don't call themselves Plantagenets. They call themselves Angevins. Under the Plantagenets, the English court spoke French at least up to Edward III. Is that right? Uh, Edward II, okay. Uh, And they... Married French queens, Henry II, of course, we've heard, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Edward II, Isabel of France. Maybe I should be giving them French names. Would that perhaps be more appropriate? Isabel, perhaps. I, I don't know. And, of course, we've heard Richard the Lionheart never really wanted to spend time in England. They spent ages trying to regain French lands, wasting English resources, practically bankrupting, bankrupting the country in a massive historical dead end by focusing on their trans-channel empire. Now, 
Henry VIII, I admit, shared some of this retrograde passion, this harking back in his fruitless and mercifully short wars in, the, in France. But his changes at the same time pointed England towards the wider world because Britain's future lay beyond Europe, not in the old lands in France. In fact, where they lay was in building an Atlantic empire, in trading relationships around the world. The Tudors would have the, their Calais in the New World. The Plantagenets looked backwards to regaining their ancestral homes. The Tudors looked forward. Under the Tudors, England became an outward-looking, cosmopolitan and maritime nation. They stopped being perceived as a backwater country ruled by cousins of French dukes and became an autonomous realm with distinct identity and clout. Because this is the age of empire. The Tudors saw the importance of discovery and this is the age of exploration. Let me show you how much they turned to put Britain at the centre of the world and to look outwards. This is the map of Mundi. This is, uh, from, this is how the world was seen by the Plantagenets. This is from 1300. If we look at some of the detail, we'll see that Jerusalem, is that circle on the top left, is at the centre of the world. The Mediterranean Sea is below. You've got sort of beasts and wraiths depicted to one side. And this is the British Isles. On the outskirts, lying on its side, we've got Scotland um, to the left and the southern, south of England to the right. This map is a Tudor map. This puts England at the heart of the world. The map as we know it today is a Tudor creation. Under the Plantagenets, some of the most important towns, apart from London, were York and Norwich. By the end of the Tudor period, Bristol, Exeter, Newcastle and Plymouth are catching up as England tears its gaze away from Europe and looks to the rest of the world. The ports begin to matter. Empire was pursued by the Tudors, financed by the Tudors. It was a Tudor enterprise. The story starts with a John Cabo, who, was, who himself, I admit, was Italian, but was financed by Henry VII, took an English fleet, went and discovered Canada, 1497. Then, of course, we've got in the 1560s, Sir John Hawkins. His voyages to Guyana to capture black slaves, a few hundred compared to the, the tens of thousands of the Portuguese, but enough to suggest to the English that there was money to be made in slavery. And if you see his coat of arms uh, with an image of a chained slave, you'll realise that this is a very different world. For the Tudors, there was no shame in this terrible trade that wasn't eradicated for 250 years. Not everything the Tudors did was good. But in Tolkien's 1567 voyage, he took with him a young man named Francis Drake. They were attacked by a Spanish fleet, and this encounter and the fervent faith of Drake's lay preacher father gives Drake a sense of destiny. So much so that in 1577 he takes the first circumnavigation of the globe, the first captain by a single man. He survives violent encounters with the natives, threats of mutiny, relentless storms and attacks by the Spanish and he and his crew sail through the Strait of Magellan up the coast to Peru across the Pacific Island and home via the Cape of Good Hope. So that's BC across the Pacific, Cape of Good Hope for some reason. Google's given me a number nine, but you can see where it is. 
He discovered Cape Horn, which is at point A. He claimed England's first overseas possessions. Those are at D. Elizabeth Island and Nova Albion in California. And he located the Spice Islands that you can see. I forget now whether they're E or F. I think E. Um, between Indonesia and the Philippines, starting to trade spices with England that weren't controlled by the Ottoman Muslims. And when he returned, he was knighted on board his ship. And the Spanish called him El Draco, the dragon. He was a mighty and feared man. And he brought back £600,000, twice the English annual revenue. He gave the Queen enough treasure to pay off the national debt. Wouldn't it be nice to have a Drake today? <laughs> Hawking and Drake's voyages turned English attention to the possibilities of overseas adventure. But the person who came up with the phase British Empire wasn't a sailor. It was that strange, mad historian fellow, Dr John Dee. He proved, in inverted commas, that the early Britons had travelled to America, including King Arthur, and this gave the English rights to conquer and settle in the New World. He termed the phrase British Empire. Then, of course, of course we've got people like Sir Humphrey Gilbert. He was given letters by the Queen that gave him rights for six years to search out and settle lands, and he settled Newfoundland in 1583. Raleigh sent expeditions to Roanoke in 1585, a colony that didn't last. In fact, the first successful settlement it was Jamestown in 1607 in Virginia, named for the Virgin Queen, still the seat of government of the United States of America, the most powerful country in the world. There were other exploratory trips too. Martin Frobisher searched out the Northwest Passage. Ralph Fitch spent nine years in India. And as a result of his nine years, or at least partly, the English East India Company was founded in 1600. It's a Tudor foundation. Just 12 years after Elizabeth's death, this man, Sir Thomas Rowe, would be the first official English ambassador to the court of the Mughals. And the East India Company, of course, ruled India all the way through to the mutiny, 1857, when rule was taken over directly by the British Crown. This is the beginning of the export of the English language, the Anglo-Saxon diaspora, Australia, the US, India, and many other places besides. The Tudors set England on a path of world exploration and colonisation. And the thing that made empire, as well as fish and chips, the, whole, the basis of the English identity, possible, was of course the navy. Henry VIII was the principal founder of the English Navy. In fact, every single maritime historian worth their sort dates the beginning of the modern navy to Henry VIII. Other kings, of course, built ships, but the fleet of warships that Henry VIII built was the first standing military force of its time, the basis for Britain's future domination over the seas. Henry VII left five to seven ships when he died. When Henry VIII died, he left 57 ships out of 106 ships that had sailed during his lifetime. And this was continued to be invested in under Elizabeth particularly. Henry was the first to invest in the administrative and bureaucratic government and organisation of Navy and to install permanent staff. He invested in shipbuilding, in dockyards, and as we've seen, in defensive fortresses along the south coast. And 
Under the Tudors, there was a new type of ship. Previously, ships had pretty much been troop carriers. They took men from one place to another. Under the Tudors, they become ocean-going vessels. It's that that allows Drake to go round the world in one. And they become ships with guns. This is the introduction of cannon. No longer do you have to pull up alongside another ship and then board and battle them. You can shoot from afar. In fact, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, which of course is partly down to the good old English weather, was also partly down to the ship-mounted cannon that had longer range than the Spanish equivalents. The English could fire from great distances and not be reached. They also actually, I have to say, the English sea captains relied on their experience as pirates, which gave them a certain amount of flair when it came to tactical manoeuvres. Sir John Hawkins, who we've already seen, was the architect of the English Navy, and he continued to invest in it by financial reforms that raised the pay of sailors to ensure the best quality and by making sure that ships were lighter and more manoeuvrable. And cannons on manoeuvrable ships was the most important maritime invention before aircraft carriers. Cannons on manoeuvrable ships. Because under the Tudors, ships became, to use that famous phrase, the wooden walls of Britain. For the first time, it was possible to stop invasions. Now, in the previous period, up until the time of the Tudors, there had been constant invasions. Here's some of the dates. 1216. 1336, could stop an invasion. The Plantagenet approach had been not to intercept people, but to let them land and then fight them. But under the Tudors, that all changed. And this is a foundational moment of British history. The Tudors secure the seas around Britain. And that stays pretty much true up until the middle of the 20th century. So, under the Tudors, Britain, England, Britain became an outward-looking maritime nation. With the success of the Armada, that reputation was sealed. It became possible to develop colonies overseas. And this, of course, was absolutely vital to British history for the next three or four hundred years. But this isn't all. This is also a period of English Renaissance. The Tudor monarchs were patrons of the arts. They surrounded themselves with brilliant people. People like Holbein. This is the first great age of portraiture. Now, you may think that you know what kings before Henry VIII looked like, but in fact, what you're seeing a lot of the time is a portrait type. These two were painted in the mid-16th century. What we see in this period is a massive change in the imagery of monarchy. This picture of Henry VIII, or in its original version, which was a mural at Whitehall Palace, was the first full-length, life-size portrait of an English monarch, and one of the first in Europe. David Starkey said about it, it is the reason why he fascinates, the beginning of the biography, the key to his mind. And it does certainly tell us how Henry wanted to be remembered, in a way that's patently untrue. He wanted to be remembered as virile. 
If you look at the huge shoulders that he's got here, the splayed feet, and the way they form two triangles to focus the gaze on his bulging codpiece, you understand what this picture is about. Holbein's genius paints Henry VIII, the impotent Henry VIII, as a man of lusts. In fact, one of the interesting stories here at the Tower is in the 18th century, his armour was on display and women would come and stick pins into the red velvet lining of his codpiece in the hope of aiding conception. The irony. That's the genius of Holbein. This image of Henry VIII has become the default image of masculinity. If you're thinking of somebody else who puts his hands on his hips and, ha hips and has differently coloured pants, <laughs> Superman's your man. But Elizabeth II masters the art of monarchy. She, uh, she knows how to use portraiture to, to persuade. Whether it's as her innocence, this is painted in 1600, of her coronation, or of her purity, that's the cherry behind the ear and all those pearls. It's, and there are other things that the Tudors are patrons of as well. Music. This is the age of uh, Talis. Tavner, Gibbons, there are two great ages of English composers, the 16th century and the 20th century. This is one important one. Architecture. I would suggest to you that a Tudor cottage defines our idea of the sort of perfect little desirable house in the countryside. The chocolate box, thatched cottage. Or a step up, the black and white, gorgeous, timber-framed building. This is Little Morton Hall. Or the grand prodigy house. Uh, these are by, designed by the first men to be called architects, Robert Smithson and William Arnold. These are the sort of places you want to go and see whenever we next get a day of sunshine. And this is why, if you look all over England at domestic architecture, mock Tudor reigns. And not just in England, that one on the bottom right is in Shimla. It's the public library there in North India, because the English exported their style of architecture when they went overseas. But of course, what I haven't said till now is that this was the golden age of English literature. Now, we've seen that Henry VIII was the first king to authorise an English Bible. The English language was transformed um, in this period by the translations of William Tyndale, who was the first man to print a version of the New Testament in English in 1525-26. We can consider him one of the architects of the English language. Look at all these phrases. These are phrases that were then incorporated into the Great Bible and then into the King James Bible that are part of our language today. And they're phrases that Tyndale came up with. This is also an age of the first sonnets. The first sonnets written in English were written by Sir Thomas Wyatt, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, the first uh, alleged lover of Anne Boleyn, the second Henry VIII's last victim. They paved the way for the great luminaries of Elizabeth's court, Spencer, Marlowe, and yes, I've got to him, Shakespeare. Johnson, Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's cantankerous rival, said of Shakespeare, he is not of an age but for all time. And because Shakespeare is so timeless and universal, because he is so ingrained in our culture, because he's so performed around the world, we forget that he was of a time. He was a Tudor. He was born in a rural market town in the early years of Elizabeth I's reign. He was formed by the social, religious and political worldview of the period. His art was written to meet the flourishing demands of the theatre in London in the 1590s. His heyday began under the last days of Gloriana. 
for all Chaucer's importance, nothing compares to Shakespeare's extraordinary output of 37-odd plays. His profound ability to illuminate the human condition in exquisite verse, his time-transcending stories, his great characters and his inventive turns of phrase. When you appear on Desert Island Discs, you are given a complete works of Shakespeare along with the Bible. That is how much Shakespeare is considered to stand for British culture. If to mimic Bernard Levin, you cannot understand my argument and it's all Greek to you, you are quoting Shakespeare. If you refuse to budge an inch, think I'm playing fast and loose but making a virtue of necessity, if you insist on fair play, if you think that's the long and short of it, if the game is up and the truth will out and even bid me good riddance in every instance, you'd be quoting Shakespeare. Britain's cultural renaissance happened under the Tudors. In short, the Tudors planted the seeds for those things that made Britain, Britain. Whether it's in exploration, in empire, in the break with Rome, the sense that we are a Protestant nation. If it's reorientating England away from Jerusalem, no longer just on the edge of Europe, but outward-looking, a maritime nation. If it's a cultural renaissance in art, music, architecture, and of course literature, then you need to look to the Tudors. They were more important in a hundred odd years than any medieval kings over the previous centuries. Finally, there's another way of looking at this question of who mattered most, and that's what we think about when we speak about history. Now, the Tudor period has been pretty fruitful when it comes to Oscar-winning films like Elizabeth, Shakespeare in Love, non-Oscar-winning films like The Other Berlin Girl, TV series like The Tudors, and of course there's a cottage industry of novels centering on Henry and his wives. One can think of a very famous one that's out right now. The Tudors have been fertile ground for today's thinkers. Kenneth Branagh's Henry V notwithstanding, I struggle to find as many films and creative outputs that are based on the Plantagenets. I'm talking of course of fiction, not of brilliant works of history like Dan's book. Is there a reason why the age of the Plantagenets hasn't inspired works of art? I'll leave you with this thought. You can tell a lot about a national psyche from what they, the stories they tell about themselves. The stories we tell about ourselves are about the Tudors. Thank you. That was Susanna Lipscomb. Susanna is the author of A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England, published by Ebury earlier this year. That lecture was organised in association with historic royal palaces, who run the Tower of London, Hampton Court, Kew Palace and other royal venues. You can find out more about them at hrp.org.uk. And we've now broadcast all of our lectures from the Tower of London. Our events programme does continue, however. You can find details of our next talk on Nelson and Napoleon at the British Academy in London on our website, historyextra.com forward slash lectures. And that's about all for this episode. Next week we'll be back in the studio discussing the Battle of El Alamein and the suffragettes. In the meantime, do have a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content, and you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook too. This History Extra podcast was recorded in the Tower of London and produced in Bristol by Dave Gibson. <laughs>